This episode is sponsored by Hired.com. Every week on Hired, they run an auction where over a 1,000 tech companies in San Francisco, New York, and L.A. bid on iOS developers, providing them with salary and equity up front. The average iOS developer gets an average of 5 to 15 introductory offers and an average salary offer of $130,000 a year. Users can either accept an offer and go right into interviewing with the company or deny them without any continuing obligations. It's totally free for users, and when you're hired, they also give you a $1,000 bonus as a thank you for using them. But if you use the iFreaks link, you'll get a $2,000 bonus instead. Finally, if you're not looking for a job but know someone who is, you can refer them to Hired and get a $1,337 bonus if they accept a job. Go sign up at Hire.com slash iFreaks. Hey, everybody, and welcome to iFreaks, episode number 161. I'm Andrew Madsen, and this week we're going to be talking with Amir Rajan. Amir, do you want to introduce yourself a little? Yeah, um, man, I, it's it's crazy. I can actually just say I'm a game developer. I know there's probably a lot of people out there that are like aspiring or do hobbyist stuff, but I can actually say that now. Um, I was at a recent uh, checkup at a physician, and you know that you sign those like you you fill out the little forms for a new patient enrollment, and it was like occupation. And I said game developer, and uh, that was pretty cool to be able to do that. So uh, I'm a game developer. Uh, I built uh, iOS applications. And iOS games, uh, my claim to fame, I guess, would be A Dark Room. It's a minimally text-based RPG, and uh, it hit the number one spot in the App Store, both on the paid market and the free market. Uh, so globally, it's got 2.5 million downloads, uh, 25,000 five-star reviews. It was the number one app overall in 17 countries, and it's the number one game in 50 countries, and then the number 10 in the top 10 game list in about 120 so um, it's gotten quite a bit of success. And then on top of after that, I created a, a prequel, a pre-sequel, and another game. And all three of the games that I've built so far have, have made it into the top 150 uh, premium maps in the App Store. So I've got quite a bit of success there uh, with regards to you know game development and, and um, I guess, by extension, marketing applications. Cool. Well, there are not many people that can say they, especially in this day and age, they developed a game for iOS and hit the number one spot. That's not easy to do. Let alone a text-based game. Yeah, so <laughs> graphics in this thing. <laughs> I was just gonna say, uh, if I were, you know, thinking of video game types that would do really well on mobile, minimal text-based RPG would not be <laughs> what not came to cool. mind. Yeah, yeah. Um, and the crazy thing was that even at the end of 2014, I was put on Apple's top 10 apps of 2014. On top of that, they even liked it, and that's that's that goes against you know everything that we think about when we think about apps and you know. The, the apps that actually show up, the ones that are, you know, really pretty and really slick and use all the features of the, you know, iOS devices and things like that. So, um, yeah, it was good to get accolades from Apple also on top of that. So let's break this down a little. You started, uh, you had an idea for a game. I take it. You decided you wanted to develop a game. Somehow the idea came to you. I think most of us as iOS developers or programmers in general know that in general, coming up with ideas is not really the difficult part. I mean, I have right. ideas yes. all the time, right? <laughs> So tell us a little bit about what makes a dark room really special. So actually, uh, March 2013, um, I quit my job and kind of went on a sabbatical. So I spent three months binge coding on whatever I wanted to. And then that's when I started thinking about, hey, I, I want to get into iOS development. I want to learn iOS development and thought about building a game. So a dark room actually started off as a web-based game. It went viral on Hacker News, and uh, it was just a HTML5 web-based game no server-side code. It was all done through local storage, as far as game state was concerned. And um, you know, I was like, "Hey, this is this looks like a you know simple game uh, to maybe 
dip my uh, dip my toes into iOS development with. So I emailed the original developer, Michael Townsend, and I said, hey, uh, you know, I want to try my hand at iOS development. Um, can I take this game, uh, re-envision it for a mobile medium, and, you know, if we make something, I'll you know, charge a buck, you know, a buck, one one ninety nine, and we'll split the profits. What do you say? He's like, yeah, go for it. So then that's kind of how it started. And um, if you if you compare, like, the web version of the game and the iOS version of the game, they've They've diverged. It's really interesting because the web version was uh, actually open source and um, it was under a MIT license. So the web version of the game is MIT license and other people have started contributing to the web version of the game. And it's deviated from, I guess, my vision that I had for the iOS version of the game and the changes that I made to the iOS version. So you across time, it's been, I guess, two to three years now, um, you can kind of play both versions and see how, how they've changed and evolved over time. Uh, so it's it's really weird. It's interesting how that organically happened. So then I spent four months building the game and uh, deployed it to the App Store. I got first day, you know, I tweeted it out and I got about 35 downloads. And it kind of stayed that way for about four to five months. I did my own marketing and we'll I guess we'll go into detail into pretty much all, all I did there. And then about five to six months in, uh, around April, it shot up in the UK. It became the number one app in the United Kingdom. And then two weeks after that, it became the number one app in the United States. And it stayed there for about 18 days. And um, that's all she wrote, I guess. After that, you know, it fell off. And about eight to nine months after that, I made it free. And it hit the number three spot in the free app store. Uh, the only two games that were ahead of me was the Facebook messaging app, which I think everyone was forced to download during that time period. Yeah, that doesn't count. Yeah, that doesn't count, right? And the second one was uh, uh, was Crazy Taxi. So a uh, game built by Sega. It was the editor's choice for that time. So I had the top banner app, and it was a free game. So those were the only two apps that did better than I did during that time period. And then I went back to paid, created the pre-sequel, and now I'm on my third game, building that out, and right, continuing to be a game developer. <laughs> when you started with A Dark Room, were you doing things intentionally to try to make the game really successful? Or it, sound, it sounds to me like it was kind of, you know, you... You didn't know what to expect, and it, you got I did, really yeah, lucky. Frankly, I didn't, yeah, frankly, I didn't know what to expect. And, you know, that's an unfortunate aspect of being successful. I think in general, um, not even in the App Store, but overall, is that there is, a, there is a component of luck there. I think there was a component of luck to go viral in the U.K. I think there was a, there was a component of luck to the number one spot in the U.S. App Store. That being said, to stay there for 18 days, uh, there was – quality built into the app to, to actually do that. So yeah, when I started, it was like, okay, I just want to build a game. Um, this is a text-based game. It's going to be easy to do. I'm not going to have crazy 2D graphics, you know, 3D graphics or 60 frames per second that I have to deal with. It's, it's just a text-based game. And this would be a way to get my, you know, dip my feet into some, some iOS development. So what happened was after I finished the game, I kind of got obsessed with marketing the game. And we can go into detail of kind of how I did that uh, if we're uh, good on that specific segue. Yeah, I would actually love to hear what you did. To, yeah, to sure. Um, so, th so my whole marketing thing actually started off with Twitter. So the web version went viral and hit Hacker News, and a lot of people started tweeting about the web version of the game. So I I've had people say, "Oh, the only reason that you've been successful is because the web version went viral on Hacker News." Keep in mind that it's been six to seven months since that time period, right? And um, I went back and I searched Twitter for the URL that people posted from way back then. And uh, I took the persona of the game. So I created a Twitter handle called The Darkroom iOS. 
And um, I spoke to those people that tweeted about the web version of the game in the persona of the game itself. So instead of trying to be very, you know, very salesy saying, oh, hey, I'm Amir and I ported the game, I would just say some ridiculous things with regards to the game itself. So there's a there's an area, specific area in the game, events in the game where uh, you can actually get attacked by snarling beasts. And it's just this text comes up saying that, hey, you know, your village has been attacked by snarling beasts and it's killed people. And um, I would tweet that. I would say snarling beasts has, have attacked your village or I consume a part of your soul every time you stoke the fire or some variation of that. And uh, people started to interact with that. They really enjoyed that kind of exchange with a Twitter persona as opposed to just being, hey, shelled out, hey, you know, buy my version of the game. And um, one of the really interesting interactions, uh, so a couple of things that I, I was able to get from that interaction, and I guess this goes into more of the technical aspects of how do you convert this stuff into sales and whatnot. Um, what I saw was every time someone with about a 1,000 followers retweeted the game, I saw a noticeable spike in downloads. So it turns out that you get about 10 downloads for every 1,000 followers you have. And I think it's important to have that delineation. You're like, oh, okay, so you get one download for every 100 followers. It's almost like a step function. So anything below 100, 1,000 followers, you're probably not going to get any downloads. It's only when you get into the the thousand followers and then multiples of that where you start really seeing some kind of residual residual effect or some noticeable spike when you look at the downloads for the next day. So I interact with people, they would retweet what I said to them. And then I would say, okay, this person had about 6,000 followers or 5,000 followers. That was a big tweet for me. Does that correlate well? And it did. It was, it was surprising to see that kind of correlation there. So that's kind of how I started things. And during that time period, um, I actually built a relationship uh, I had one interaction with a person named uh, Lee Alexander, and she was uh, at that time a prominent um, editor for, I think it was Pace Magazine, uh, Giant Bomb, Giant Bomb and Pace Magazine, and uh, she was a she was a real prominent editor. And from that period, I actually started building a relationship with uh, with her with regards to you know a dark room and reaching out to her via email saying that hey, this is what I'm trying to do, or uh, I'm an indie developer, telling her my story of how. I got involved with ADR and what I did to get into mobile development and then become an indie game developer. And um, that uh, relationship took about almost 127 days to build out before I actually asked her, hey, would you publish an article about me? So um, that was another aspect with Twitter was that you have the sales funnel effectively. For me, it was the URL for a darkroom. I used that and then instead of being salesy about it, I was genuine with my interaction. And then when I found a person that I wanted to build a relationship with, it took time. It wasn't, it wasn't just like an overnight success. I think that's a key thing with the marketing approaches that I, that I took with, with ADR and specifically Twitter. You mentioned that you, uh, on Twitter, you spoke basically in the voice of the game as if, as if you were the game. Do you think that's a valuable technique for developers in general? Oh, yeah. I think so. There's a couple of things that I think are really important with regards to uh, the social media aspect, specifically Twitter. Um, I'll speak to Reddit also. I'm I'm pretty well versed in Reddit, but in, but in Twitter, uh, people there there were mistakes I made. One mistake I made was that I didn't create that Twitter following as I was building the game. If the game went viral, and then I got the email from Michael immediately, then is when I should have created the Twitter handle and started letting people know that hey, this game is being built for iOS. Follow me for updates. So that was one mistake I made. A mistake that many people make is that they wait to actually tell people about what they're doing 
uh, until the day of release. And then you have an audience of one when you do that. And that's not very helpful. Um, so yes, talking in the persona of the game is really important. And, and then actually having a narrative outside of just the game itself. So a narrative about who you are, how you're developing your game or company or what your philosophy is behind the product you're building. And then on top of that, having curated content that is not related to your game. So there's only so much people care about ADR. And, you know, I can uh, talk about a dark room and kind of the updates and plug jokes about in-game mechanics. But eventually you want to pull in other things that your followers would be interested in. Other text-based game, other premium games that don't have in-app purchases. A dark room is a premium game without in-app purchases or ads or anything like that. So then that's how you start building that followership. But uh, yeah, it's very important. You can't just shell your own product, I guess. I think that's a mistake that people make. Yeah, well, so I, I know just as a regular user and a, as a Twitter user that I'm not really likely to follow an account that's just going to tweet, buy my stuff, you know, a couple times exactly. a day because yeah. that's just boring, right? And the good ratio, I think uh, I think the ratio that I found is about 10% of my tweets are about maybe self-promotion of my own products. But then the other 90% is tweeting and supporting other indie, uh, indie game developers. If people have done artwork about a darkroom, you know, I'll retweet them. Or if they've had general inspiration in different different pieces of art, I'll, I'll retweet about that. But yes, you, you need to kind of mix it in with, with um, other stuff and good curated content. So we've talked about Twitter, and you mentioned Reddit a little too, but are there other, other avenues for, for getting, uh, you know, getting traction, getting the word out about? Yeah, so for me, um, I tried Facebook. I, I tried Facebook ads. I mean, same mistake there. I'm not very active on Facebook. You need to have an audience built before you can you know, pitch a product. So I didn't have the audience built there. I tried Facebook ads. That didn't work for me. And my budget was about, was about $150 a day. I did that for about two weeks, two, three weeks. That was really painful and expensive, but uh, it, didn't, it didn't work out for me. But uh, one thing that did really well for me was Reddit. So the way I, came, the way I stumbled across Reddit was interesting through Twitter so I was on Twitter and then I received a reply from someone saying that they were trying to play the game and they were having issues playing this game. And uh, I was talking to him, I was like, what, what's wrong? What bugs are you seeing? And uh, he's like, well, I'm having trouble with this ASCII map. Uh, it's, it's part of the game. It reveals an ASCII map. And um, he, was having, he's, he was having difficulties with, with that aspect of, of the game mechanic. And I play tested this thing for way too long, right? And uh, he, he comes back and he says, no, I'm blind. I'm actually using the voice over capabilities of, of iOS to play your game. And the interesting thing was that because it was a text-based adventure, he was explicitly searching for the word text-based or you know, text adventure in the, in the app store. And that's where he was able to find it. So then I was like, okay, whoa, yeah, the map is definitely not <laughs> accessible to the blind. Went back and made it accessible. I wrote about that on my blog. And then uh, there's a community out there called AppleViz, AppleViz.com. And they are a blind community that uses iOS and supports. And it's a forum for having apps that are accessible to the blind or reaching out to app developers and then talking about apps that are accessible to the blind. So their editorial team contacted me and said, hey, we want to do a, a giveaway on our site about the blog post you wrote. We saw the blog post. We really appreciate it. We want to do a giveaway on our site about the blog post you wrote. So what we're saying is that we'll we'll post this contest on our page. Uh, you give us ten promo codes, and they have to read your blog entry, write about a comment in our forum saying that they've read it and prove that they read it by speaking to the blog in, blog entry in some way. 
and then we'll give them a promo code. So um, it worked really well. I mean, I got a lot of nice interactions from there. And then that's where I started taking that idea and, and transitioning it to Reddit and where I started actually writing about the development of the game. So there's a, there's a subreddit on uh, Reddit called r slash app hookup. And basically you go there to see who's done discounted apps or if there's any developers giving away promo codes or whatnot. And what I did was I did um, a promo code giveaway on our app hookup. And I basically did the same thing. I said, hey, read this article about um, you know, supporting blind gamers and uh, comment on, on Reddit, letting me know that you've read it, and I'll give you a promo code. And uh, that's exactly what I did. I got a ton of comments, and uh, the post got upvoted specifically because Reddit is about you know comments and the interactions that happen ar- around an article. And I got a lot of good love there. And I continually did that. So every time I, I went, I retroactively went back, went through the development process, and started writing about my marketing tactics and what I did and what how and how I was approaching you know different aspects of game development or my own personal I guess development diary. And then anytime there was a publication out there uh, for for a dark room, if it was a small publication or large publication, I would post on our app hookup, say read about a dark room, tell me that you prove to me that you read it, and then I'll give you a promo code. And that works so much better than just putting your promo codes out there and then saying hey here's promo codes download my game. And um, they started knowing me as a developer, uh, and then started knowing me by names like, "Hey, this is a mirror. This is the game that he built." So then, when I released the pre sequel in my even my third game, uh, just putting it out there saying that I'm making it free for three days, it'd be the top post, and then people would comment saying that you know I really enjoy your games, and you know I can't wait to play this, and I can't wait to gift it to my friends and recommend it to my friends. So there was a lot of a good like person to person interaction that that happened because of because of I guess that that whole uh, seven degrees of Kevin Bacon thing, right? You start with Twitter, a blind person plays the game, I write a blog post, AppleViz contacts me to do a giveaway, and then I find myself on Reddit doing the same thing. Yeah, I think there are two really interesting things in what you were just talking about there. And the first is that you made the, the game accessible to blind users because this blind player contacted you. But by, by doing that, it sounds like, you know, I mean, I, I don't know, my first thought when I'm trying to market a game would probably not be, well, I really need to work hard to get blind players because I yeah, I, crazy, I actually right? feel strongly that that you should things should be accessible and that that, that you should serve uh, people with disabilities and, and, and whatever. But you might not think that's going to give you a big marketing boost, right? You do it because it's the right thing. You do it because it uh, feels good and and whatever. But it seems like this was actually a really important thing for you. Yeah, and yeah, frankly, you know, after I, after I released it, I saw a small bump. You know, the day after, I think those people that were on AppleViz finally downloaded the game. But I was doing it for that specific reason of just, you know, doing the right thing. And then surprisingly, uh, making apps accessible, especially if you're making business applications, 80% of it is kind of done by Apple. Just, just by using UI kit, um, you get a lot of, uh, a lot of things for free. And it's just a matter of, you know, just, just kind of polishing that aspect of it. I guess that's something unique about my game is that it's built completely with UI kit. I didn't actually use any kind of gaming framework with it. I guess, I guess that's what you get for building a text-based game. Right? Well, and, and of course, text lends itself well to being accessible as well. Yeah, yeah. So it, it, the stars lined up correctly, and I lucked out from that, from that period. But I think what I really learned, the other thing uh, probably was that just the interaction, right, to build right. conversations and 
tell that narrative and tell that story. Um, and it's not just the product, but it's everything else that revolves around that product. This that's incredibly important to marketing. Yeah. On that topic, I have a I have a Mac app that I sell. It's actually uh, an app that ham radio operators use, and it turns out there are quite a quite a number of blind ham radio operators. It's a hobby that's good for blind people because a lot of it is done by hearing, right? And you're talking right. to people, and it's a way that they can sort of uh, get out and communicate with people all over the world in, in a way that's maybe more difficult for a blind person than than it even is for you know seeing people. And I, mm-hmm. I have always been, I have always worked really hard to make my app accessible. And of course, it's pretty easy, like you said, because it's built with, it's a Mac app, but it's built with AppKit and you get a lot of that free. But what it's meant is I have quite a loyal following of blind users. And I've noticed they're probably more likely than the average user to recommend the app to other people because they really yeah. appreciate and love the fact that, you know, you go the extra mile and make it work for them. And they, and they, they know that's not something everybody does. Yeah. And it's just meaningful. Like uh, when it hit the number one spot, I got an email from, you know, some random person that said, Hey, you know, I just want to email you and let you know that I really appreciate that you made your app accessible. Uh, my sister is blind. And, you know, she, when it, when it went viral and all of her kids, all the kids at school were playing it, that was the first app she was able to actually participate in and talking about. And, you know, and it was, we, I really appreciate it. Right. So you, you get those kind of things and it's just, it, it makes it totally worth it. Yeah. It's cool. Yeah. Well, and then you also talked about when you, you know you started using Reddit, and it seems like the big thing there is not not even really that you were giving away promo codes. I mean, obviously that seems to to generate interest, and it's kind of mm-hmm. part of the app hookup subreddit. But really, it was that you made it so people knew you, you know, and they felt a little bit of a personal connection, and like they were. I almost I think they're probably they probably felt somewhat invested in your success. You know, they like your yeah. first game, they want your second game to do well, so you keep yeah. making games. Yeah, and and they support you that way too. It's it's really good to you know to see that kind of stuff. And then uh, another interesting thing that I've done with marketing, uh, sp- specifically around Reddit, and uh, I, I don't I, I'm assuming it's more of a cultural aspect of Reddit because Reddit does kind of things like uh, with regards to Secret Santa and you know giving away or giving Reddit gold. But um, I, I try to build a culture around. Hey, if you like my game, yeah, you're getting it free here. Or, you know, I made it free for two days. Go ahead and download it. You know, I want you to enjoy it. There's no strings attached. You know, it's free. The game has no in-app purchases, no ads. Just enjoy the game. If you like it, gift it to someone else. Pay it forward. And, um, you know, I appreciate it, right? Another thing that I ended up doing was that anytime someone recommended a darkroom to someone else, maybe through a subreddit, I'll just, like, search on Reddit. I'd actually give them Reddit gold. I would give them ready to go and say, hey, I appreciate you, you know, telling people about my game. And, um, you know, here's here's a thank you. Here's some Reddit gold. And I would just say a mirror creator of the darkroom. And, you know, those are the kind of connections that they're deep. Right. And then those are the connections where one person might end up telling 10 of his friends and they will download it. And it's not just, you know, some banner ad flying across the screen. It's it's a personal a recommendation from someone. Right. You've mentioned a couple times that your games, I think all of them, but at least a dark room, it's not a free within app purchase freemium kind of game. It's a, you know, just you straight up buy it, although you've made it free now and then. But yeah, I will. So I think the common wisdom is that these days, and I mean, it's true that these days, a big, big portion of the money made on the app store is being made by these freemium games within app purchase. And I think there's even the idea that among those games, the ones that are successful, they're not even really making money on most of the most of the people playing the game. They're making money on on the whales, the people who exactly. are rich yep. and spend hundreds of dollars on on in app purchases. 
Yep. And I think to me and to a lot of other iOS developers and just a lot of people in the community that sort of care about the App Store and whatever, we've seen that as a negative thing. It's it's like it's kind of gross now that games have to be. It, it seems like to be successful, you got to do this kind of scammy thing where you're really sort of playing on people's yeah and addiction it, it, and, and whatever. Yeah, and I find it frustrating too. Um, it's difficult. It's difficult to be in this position where. Where you know how do I how do I make sustainable income so I can continue to do this full time without being a sleazeball, right? Right. Yeah. Um, so I can speak a little bit uh, to to those techniques. Was there was there something else that you wanted to? Yeah. Yeah. So I was just going to say it's refreshing for me to hear that you're do, you're not doing that and you're still seeing uh, some some good success. So I wonder. I mean, I get the feeling maybe I'm wrong, but you're probably not making you know two hundred and fifty thousand dollars a month. No, I'm not. <laughs> you worry, and and I'd be more than happy to share revenue. Um, there, there's no problem with me doing that. Well, and um, I guess what I'm getting at is, I'd like to know, I'd like to know, you know, how what what success means for you, and and then also what you think selling your apps with this just plain old paid model has meant as far as marketing goes and as far as your success goes. Yeah. So, um, so a couple of things. So let's touch on as far as um, as far as like the income and things like that. Uh, I make anywhere from uh, on the low end, you know, when ADR was so ADR hit the number one spot, and it was kind of it, it, it did its eighteen um, it did its eighteen uh, day thing, and at that spot, I was make I was getting about anywhere from twelve to twenty thousand dollars a day, so that is some serious money coming in during that time period, and it tapered it tapered off by the time November came around, I was down I was back down to a hundred dollars a day. So as of today, all, I have three games. My three games together, um, I get anywhere from three to eight hundred downloads a day for my three games, and um, it's not a lot of money if you really think about it. Apple takes thirty percent. Being self-employed, fifteen percent goes to taxes on top of the income, my income tax. Uh, so I got I have to pay the self-employment tax and then the income tax on top of that. So I, I make maybe any and and I have partnerships involved too. So I net anywhere from twenty to forty cents on my games. All my games are ninety nine cents. So basically, I, I net anywhere from twenty to forty percent. Best case, forty percent on my games. It's not a lot of money, but the other interesting aspect of it is that being a premium game and being a one one man shop, I don't need a big piece of pie, right? So the AAA, all the AAA companies are competing in this flooded market, while getting to a top rank in the RPG category. Or in the music category, doesn't take a lot of downloads, and you get that visibility immediately without much effort, actually. So that's it's a really interesting angle, of specifically if you're a small-time developer, to take. And um, you know, you find your niche, you find, you take more of a grassroots and you know a, a bottom-up approach. Get people that really care about what you're building, have them recommend it, and then slowly your your app, even with even a hundred downloads, could make it into the top 100 of a category, getting about 500 downloads at a four-day moving average, that's that's about what I've been able to see, will get you in the top 100. And um, it's surprising. It's really surprising to hear that. But you get into the top 100, and then suddenly it creates a snowball effect, and more people find it, and you start climbing and climbing and climbing. So um, it, it worked really well being a premium app for me. Um, it's a buck. Uh, I don't ask a lot. My reviews are really good for my applications. And uh, you take that leap of faith for one of my games, and then I rely on interstitials within my applications, basically just recommendations that, hey, if you bought my game, buy my other games. And uh, I'm kind of competition-free from that perspective because I'm not competing with those AAA companies there. 
sounds like for you, I actually think it would be this way for me. You're not aspiring to compete with EA or, or something. You're, Correct. you're aspiring to do what you do. And, and, you know, it sounds like you're making, you're not rich by any means, but you're making certainly enough to live on and keep doing what you're doing. Yeah. And the interesting thing is that, um, and I try to tell this to other game developers too, or developers in general, if you can make an app that generates 10 bucks a month, I mean, 10 bucks a day, you know, that's 300 bucks a month. That's a car payment, right? There's, there's some uh, weights to that. So if you start and it's a mobile app, so generally there'll be smaller too. And suddenly you, you do this for two years and now you have five, six apps and you do this for another two years and now you have 20 apps. And now you're, now you have interstitials between your apps, recommending them by the, by your other apps. And suddenly everything gets lifted up and you get a lot of this small money coming together and, you know, really giving you some, something to actually live off of. It's sort of a different model than I think we hear a lot. And I know, you know, when I tell people I'm an iOS developer, just like family and friends and whatever, a lot of times they'll say, Oh, I have an idea for a million dollar app. And I think, well, right. I'm not really trying to make million dollar apps. I just want yeah. to make stuff. I want to make a three. Cool. I want to make a four thousand dollar app. Right, exactly. <laughs> That's something that I try to tell people too. Is that if your if your app can consistently make you know four to five thousand dollars annually, that's success. You know, take that, uh, solidify it. You know, you don't have to really put that much effort into building that out anymore. Build your next app and then cross pollinate and build your next app and keep your brand consistent across your apps. And that's a really good way to uh, to make some sustainable income. I want to change gears just a little bit. Uh, okay. You you mentioned before the show that you do a lot of other kinds of development, in particular web development, Node, mm-hmm. and that sort of stuff. So, did you have any iOS development experience before you started on a darkroom? I didn't have any iOS development experience. So I I was I did a .NET and a Ruby on Rails and Node.js development before before I decided to take some time off. So I was in the development industry for about six to seven years. And then that's when I decided to take a sabbatical. It's kind of burned out from corporate development and just kind of wanted to do my own thing. And I set aside, I was like, okay, I've got a year's worth of money that I want to burn through. Um, I've put my chips on the table. You know, this is, this is just fun, quote unquote, fun money. Um, if I lose it, no big deal. If anything happens afterwards, great. And that's kind of how I took the, uh, took that approach, but I had no specific iOS development, plenty of development experience, just not with iOS. Well, the reason I think this is interesting is that, you know, I, most of the people listening to us now are, are iOS developers, but no matter who you are, there, there are lots and lots of skills that you don't already have and whole areas of endeavor that you've never done anything with before. And I just wonder if there was value in, for you in taking that time off and diving into something new. And I, I imagine, I mean, you were already a developer, so it was easier than if you were starting from scratch, but there's still a lot to learn. Um, yeah, I, I just wonder what that experience meant uh, for the game and for the success of the game and, and kind of for what, what's going on now. That's actually pretty important. Um, I've had people tell me about, oh, I want to build this app or I want to build that app. And they try to do the, I want to learn from it and make money. And I think that's where things get a little tricky. Because if I was going to build the game to make money, I wouldn't have done it in native iOS. I would have done it you know, using like a web wrapper or something and some JavaScript and then maybe polished up what Michael, the, the web developer, did on his front end and try to make money on the application. But I took a step back and said, no, I want to try to learn from the experience. So I think that's an important aspect of, you know, if you're, if you're building your own apps, don't try to walk that line. Decide, decide if it's something that you want to make money out of. Have the end goal in mind. Have your exit strategy in mind. Do what you need to do to build that app out. If it means hire subcontractors to do it or offshore it or whatever, do it. 
And if you want to learn from it, then learn from it. But once you try to do both things, it gets, it gets kind of, the waters get kind of muddied. Uh, but my experience was strictly going in saying, I want this to be a learning experience and I want the code to be quote unquote perfect. And I just want to enjoy developing and building this application. And I think uh, the interesting thing is that that quality that was, I guess, built into the application showed through when, when it did go viral. What about people who can't take three months off? Uh, do it part-time. Definitely do it part-time. I would not recommend anyone <laughs> uh, take, a, take a year off to try to make a number one app in the app store. Please don't take that advice. But I think, I think having a, a side hustle, for lack of a better term, wake up in the mornings. Uh, you know, John Somnus is a guy that uh, you know, really advocates that. Wake up in the mornings, code on, code on some stuff, and your, I think your first goal is to build an app uh, have something that you can deploy to the app store in about four to six weeks. And this is actually something that I did with my third game, and I'll go into a little bit of detail with that. But try to think of something that you can build in about you know, four to six weeks part-time. It doesn't have to be big. It doesn't have to be perfect because you can always submit an update, get it in the app store, get some downloads, get some reviews, get some feedback, and see if you can generate even a dollar a day. If it's through ads, if it's through IAP, if it's through paid purchases, whatever you see from that perspective, and then iterate on that. And if, and if you hit the $10 a day mark, you know, that's really good. Then you can start on your next app or you can decide, you know, if you want to do some kind of, some kind of spinoff. And I think that's palpable to say, do it part-time, try to build these assets slowly. And uh, it's, it's not going to happen overnight. You got to build it slowly and release when you can. And don't, uh, don't sweat the pressure of having a complete perfect app the first day you release. Uh, the first day you release, probably no one's going to download it. I mean, I, I don't think that's a surprise to anyone. Or very few people are going to download it. Even fewer people are going to give you reviews on it. So just go ahead and put it out there and then iterate on it in public. Do you think there's anything you did in the the, the, the design or in the game itself that, that helped you uh, you know, spread the word or get, get more people? Beyond, yes. beyond, I mean, you made the game you made the game a really good game and it's, it's high quality and... Yeah. So a couple of things that I did. So when I, when I hit the number one spot in the app store, don't release. If you hit the number one spot in the app store, do not release an update to your application, right? Um, you just kind of want to, you don't want to rock the boat or anything. You want to keep your reviews. Anytime you release a new version of your application, the reviews reset. Does that happen in the Mac app store also? Yeah. It's, it's really annoying too. It's really frustrating. It is really frustrating. Um, so, uh, so obviously don't release any updates. And then, um, the really interesting thing was that, and this was added after, I guess, the, the app dropped, was that Michael and I actually created developer commentary at the end of the application or at the end of the game. So once you beat the game, you a secret button would unlock and you would actually get developer commentary about how we built the game, how we came, who we are, and how the game was developed and what we left out, what we put in, and all those different variations. So um, it was kind of an interesting experience. You, you play the game. You beat it. Your mind is blown. You get this button that shows up called Secrets. You listen to the developer commentary. You enjoy like 20 minutes of us rambling about you know random things about the development of the game. And then after that is when you get a request to review the game. And so that trajectory had, puts you in a position to put, put us in a position to have very high quality reviews when people did review our game and then have a, a more personal connection. So it's really interesting when people talk about, you know, interacting with editors or trying to get editors to review their game or whatnot. Maybe think about just connecting with the people that actually downloaded it. You, you no longer have that red tape of having to go to some big to big website to kind of say, oh, please, you know, review my game and give me some visibility. 
you've got 10 people that downloaded it. Well, try to figure out how to connect to those 10 people because they're the ones that, you know, you want other people to, they're the ones that you want recommending to other people. So that worked out really well for us. And then you got to have a review button. I think if your app does not have a review button, pick the perfect time to ask for a review. Don't do the next screen. The next screen is, is kind of a cop out. Pick the perfect time to ask for a review and ask for the review then. And I promise you that your, your reviews will go up. A uh, thing that's been difficult for me to figure out and, and for, for developers in general, but you know, there are some who say you, you should never ask for a review. It's scammy or, you know, sort of gross or whatever, which I, I don't agree with. But on the other end of the spectrum is, you know, if you're putting up a thing in front of people's face every other time they try to use the app and it's keeping them from using the app, you're probably going to frustrate them more than yeah. they want to say nice things about you. Yep. So there's a line to walk there, I think. Yeah, and for me, the perfect time was as soon as you beat the game, that's when I ask you to review. And it's, and it's you know, simple. It's like, hey, I'm an indie game developer. Thanks for taking the time to play it. Um, you know, just leave a review to say thank you. And that's what people do. So it's not, uh, there, there's a lot of the other scammy things that some app developers do. They'll say, leave us a five-star review and we'll give you this free item. You know, we know that we have no idea on who reviews the app and what rating they gave us, right? Right. So from our perspective, it's like they click the button, we give them the free item. But uh, people don't know that, and they'll leave the five star review. So that's that's super scammy. But um, and and Apple will will take you will take you down if they find you doing that. Yeah, I was um, just gonna I was just gonna say I know Apple will will not allow that if they catch it. Yeah, if they catch it. Uh, but I think you know asking for reviews, um, solicit uh, and having interstitials to your other applications. Um, I think that's perfectly kosher, and uh, you, we should get rewarded for doing good work from that. We're getting kind of low on time, and I wonder if there's anything that we've missed that you really think we should talk about before we wrap things up. So I want to touch on the uh, the iterative aspect of, of building an application. So my, my latest game, A Noble Circle, it's not actually done. Um, I'm still building it, but it's in the App Store right now. And uh, basically, it, and it's for pay. Like, I'm charging people, charging people for it. So one interesting aspect that's happened with that game is that uh, it's, it's a story. Uh, have you ever read uh, Flatland? No, uh, I, have, I haven't. Abbott. You've no, heard of it, though? I've heard of it, yep. Yeah, it's a story about these two-dimensional shapes, and uh, they live in they live in this two-dimensional world, and it talks about their mannerisms. So it's a Gutenberg project book, and I was like, okay, I'm going to build a game that's inspired by Flatland. And um, the game plays kind of like a book, so it's like a tap game. Uh, it's a 2D platformer, and you know you can you can explode if you hit these pointy triangles and you're this circle that's trying to traverse this world. But the interesting thing is that I I'm building the story uh, iteratively. So you get, I deployed the first version of the game for free. I said, okay, it's a free game, enjoy it. And then there was some developer commentary at the end. It was like two minutes of gameplay. It was absolutely pretty much nothing. But the developer commentary at the end, it was just a little monologue that said, Hey, you know, I'm deploying this game as I'm building it. So I promise that, you know, every few weeks you're going to get an update to this game and, um, just support me. And so I've been doing this for a year now for this, with this game on the weekends and here and there, whenever, whenever, whenever I have a good idea, and that's how this game is developed. People look forward to it. It's almost like an episode of, you know, like some, some show you're watching. It's like, oh, I can't wait for the next episode or the next, next thing that happens within this game. So this idea of this pressure that developers feel with regards to releasing a complete product, we're in this arena where you can release, release something that's not completely finished, get some feedback, and then iterate on that. And I think, I think we shouldn't be afraid of doing that. I think and then it gives you, it gives you that early opportunity to connect uh, with your, you know, your marketing avenues and tell your story and tell your narrative and show your brand off and all that other good stuff. 
Yeah. So I think that's one of the most important things. Well, I I also think there's the, this this uh, you know interesting thing that can happen where people who, who love what you're doing will it, it keeps them coming back. Whereas if you release the whole thing and you're done, you never work on it again. Well, you're sure they might love love it and play through it for one day, but by continuing to work on it, you give them a reason to stay with it and stay with yeah. you. And interesting is that it opens you up to, to Apple features too, because uh, Apple likes promoting games that are supported. So every time you do an update, that's an opportunity for you to pitch to Apple and say, hey, you know, I've updated my game. Here's what I've added. Here are the non-trivial changes that I've made to it. You know, put me on a feature list. And uh, they may actually do that for you. Uh, so there is actually like an email that you can contact. I think it's like app store promotion at apple.com. And you give it, you, you know, you can actually submit apps there. Uh, I've got some blog entries on, you know, how to do that and stuff like that. So I'll give you links to my blog and my book and all that stuff so that people can see how you approach Apple about getting your app featured and what they're looking for and, you know, how do you craft the email and all those good things. But doing updates to your apps is actually something that Apple wants you to do. So it's in line with what they want too. We'll put those links in the show notes and that actually reminds me, why don't you tell, um, why don't you tell our listeners about uh, where they can find you, about your games, where they can find your games and also the book, sure. the book that you're writing? Sure. So my Twitter handle is uh, at Amirajan, A-M-I-R-R-A-J-A-N. And uh, Amirajan.net is my is my blog. Uh, my book is leanpub.com slash surviving the app store, all one word. And um, this book is has about 200 pages now, 45,000 words or something. I've got some exclusive interviews with other premium app developers. Have you heard of like Alto's Adventure? Yeah, um, I love that game. Yeah, he, he did an interview for the book. Hoplite is another another developer. So a lot of good developers, all indie, all um, you know, free from IAP and ads and stuff, have done exclusive interviews with me about you know how they marketed their apps and different different recommendations. So that's available. And then my game is a dark room. If you search, uh, if you just search for a dark room in the app store, you'll see it there. And then the ensign is the pre sequel to a dark room. And then a noble circle is the game that is based off of a based off of Flatland. Those are my I guess apps and my Rolodex of all the awesome things that I do. <laughs> cool. Well, I'm going to, I'm certainly going to check out your games. I actually don't play video games very often just because I've usually got other things going on that I want to do when I have free time, mm-hmm. mostly yep. writing my own stuff, you know, <laughs> writing of my course, own apps. Right? But I, when I do, when I have in the last few years, when I have gotten really into a game, it's almost always been a really well done indie iOS game that I love, you know? So yep. I'm, I'm going to check them out. Uh, should we get to the picks? Let's get to the picks. Do you? So I get three, right? Yeah. Well, you get as many as you want, but yeah, three sounds good. Three's so... good. Okay, so my picks are gonna be iOS games, of course. Oh, uh, you better not so... steal mine because I've got an iOS game pick too. Okay, go ahead. Well, uh, go ahead. well, well, do, do you want to go first? No, I've got like no. twenty. <laughs> so you, go, my, you go first. My favorite. So my all-time favorite iOS game is Hoplite. H O P L I T E. And um, it's basically it's. Uh, did you ever play like NetHack back in the day? Um, it's like a it's a text text based roguelike, and it was yep. brutally difficult. Yep. So Hoplite is inspired by that, and it's almost like a strat- turn based strategy game. But it's one of those things that you can just pick up and put down. It's like the crossword puzzle for people that love uh, turn based strategy games. I love it. So Hoplite is uh, my first my first game that I would recommend, um, and it's a premium game, no IAP, plenty of replayability. Um, the second game I would uh, I would recommend would be Alto's Adventure. It's beautiful. It's an absolutely beautiful game, and it's one of those games that really uh, explores the concept of flow, right? This idea of of just being able to zone in and zone out and look, enjoy a game. And then um, 
or enjoy where you are in, a, in an experience. So it's a beautifully, it's beautifully rendered and it's just a fun, like, uh, skiing. It's a snowboarding game, but believe me, it's, it's great. And then my final game, they're not an indie shop. I guess they're, they're more established shop. They're the ones that did Bastion. Uh, it's a game called Transistor. And uh, you play as a, you, the protagonist is this woman that can't speak. And uh, she, she, but she can sing and she has these programs. She lives in this almost like Netrunner world where she has programs that she can use to like attack people and, or uh, attack the, attack the villain. And being a developer, it's, it goes, it comes so close to your heart when you, when you see like uh, how they portray programs and how they portray some of the strategy involved in beautiful graphics, beautifully rendered, another premium game with no, no in-app purchases, but totally worth it. So I, I would say this is my three picks. Those those all sound great. I, I like Alto's Adventure and played it on the iPhone when it first came out, and then they uh they were on the Apple TV pretty pretty soon after the new Apple TV came out, and yep. I've played it on there, and it's uh it's great on the big screen too. Did you did you ever play Knights on Dreamcast? Like uh, I, I mean, I, I didn't Apple have TV a Saturn. Yeah, I didn't have a dream or a, a Saturn or a Dreamcast for that matter, but I played it at a friend's house. Yeah, it reminds me of Knights. It's so nice. It's a really pretty, well done game, just art wise, and it's also fun. And I, I need to check out Transistor. Yeah, Transistor's great. As for my picks, I'm just gonna pick one game, and I'm picking it for for two reasons. But my game is uh, a game called Black Box. I'm kind of surprised I haven't picked it before. Uh, okay. It's also an indie iOS game developed by one person, and uh, just it's just a really clever game. I'm not gonna give too much away, but sort of the the thing about Black Box is that it's maddeningly difficult, and also that m- most of the puzzles, almost all of the puzzles, are solved without touching the screen on your iPhone. And oh, that is interesting. So it's just clever and inventive. The second reason I'm picking it, besides the fact that I love playing it, is that I think the developer is doing a really great job doing a lot of the stuff that we've talked about in this show for marketing, where you know he's got a Twitter account that's that's actually pretty fun to follow. The game itself has a lot of, even though it's graphically pretty simple, it's got a lot of personality. He does some interesting stuff in the game to encourage people to to share it with their friends and and like you tweet about it, and then everybody who gets it, you get a little something. It's nothing big, but uh, in the game, there's a little bit of a reward for that. And he does it without it feeling scammy or gross at all. Um, yep. And anyway, just it's just really well done along the lines of a lot of what we've been talking about and something I've had a lot of fun with over the past, you know. Yeah, and I think, uh, frankly, I think it goes without saying that if you want to learn how to market games or if you want to learn how to make good games, you got to download games and play them, right? You have to download apps that have been featured or that are effectively your competitors or people in your same category to kind of see what they're doing right. And um, this is a great way to do it, right? (laughs) Yep. Learn from other people who figured it out. Yep. All right. Well, I really appreciate you coming on the show, Amir. It was great to talk to you and, and to learn more a little bit more about making a, a, a good and successful iOS game. Appreciate it, man. Thanks for having me. Bandwidth for this segment is provided by Cashfly, the world's fastest CDN. Deliver your content fast with Cashfly. Visit C-A-C-H-E-F-L-Y dot com to learn more.